Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our crucified, risen, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our special consideration this morning is our first lesson, Acts 1, 1 to 11, as printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear friends in Christ, you get them as a parent from your kids. Teachers and professors get them from their students. Customer service agents get them from their clients. Doctors get them from their patients. And masters get them from their disciples. They are questions, often seemingly simple ones, that ask for a yes or a no answer, but cannot be answered with just a yes or a no. Imagine asking your doctor, so would it be a good idea to take an hour-long nap every afternoon? If you were already sleeping 16 hours a day, or if you worked 9 to 5 at a slaughterhouse, the answer would be no. But if you regularly slept only 4 hours a night and didn't have a job, then the answer would more likely be, yes, absolutely, take that nap. Or imagine your 4-year-old asking you, are dogs tame animals? In one context, you might say, yes, they are. That's why people keep them as pets. But in another, you might have to say, no, no, not all dogs are tame. Some are very wild and dangerous, so you should never approach a dog you don't know or mistreat one you do. Logically, we understand that some questions require a yes and no answer, though emotionally we often find them frustrating. The teacher, for instance, has to word his response very carefully to be complete and accurate. And the student just wants a simple, easy-to-remember positive or negative instead of a long and complicated explanation. But in the end, both the student and the teacher, the asker and the askee, should admit that the no and yes, the longer answer, is the better answer, because it leads to to greater learning and a more complete understanding. When we read the Gospels, we often see this dynamic at work. Someone asks Jesus a question, looking for a quick yea or nay, but instead they get an emotionally unsatisfying but spiritually accurate and edifying answer that gives both. We have a particularly good example of that here in our reading from Acts 1, when his disciples ask him at the end of the 40 days he spent with them after his resurrection from the dead, Lord, is this the time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I have often half-jokingly cited Christ's response here as slam-dunk evidence of his divinity because any mere human would have smacked them upside the head at this point and said, do you still not get it? Especially when he had just appeared to them over a period of 40 days and told them things about the kingdom of God. But the more serious reality, of course, is best. Even when Jesus offers his correction, a no to the thinking that prompted the question, He offers a yes behind it. 
His disciples learn a large lesson, and so do we. And he teaches this lesson, not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of faith, and so that we might better live our lives of faith. So let's explore the disciples' question and their master's answer in greater detail. What were they really asking, and what did Jesus want them to know? In the first place, when they asked, Lord, is this the time when you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking about and wanted Jesus to usher in an earthly kingdom where he would rule over a united and powerful Israel, and the Jews would no longer have to fear the Romans or the Greeks or Persians or Babylonians or, or any other enemies. And instead, other nations would submit to the rule and service of the Jews. And this was not an unusual idea for the apostles. Most Jews of that day were expecting the Messiah, when he appeared, to be an earthly king. But it was disappointing that these eleven, who had been with him for so long and were witnesses of his resurrection, still did not understand. But they would soon. Now, Jesus was remarkably kind and patient with his response. He wasn't harsh, but he did clearly say, No, no, there will be no earthly kingdom. It's not the time for that. And, and even if there were plans for such a kingdom, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has set by His own authority. So not only were the disciples entirely mistaken in their expectations about Christ's purpose on earth, they were dangerously presuming to peek into things that are not for human consideration. It is an area of knowledge that is God's and God's alone. But with the same answer that said no to worldly power, Jesus gave them a yes to another kind of power, more important, more valuable, and essential to the purpose he was giving them as the, as the servants and messengers he was leaving behind here on earth. Though they did not know the details of it yet, he pointed them to Pentecost and told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And of course, they did. They received power not only to believe, but power to be bold in their speech and their planning, power to stand firm in the face of opposition, and power to demonstrate the truth of Christ's claims and of the gospel to an ignorant and skeptical world. And as we will see on Pentecost next Sunday, this gift came to them in a vivid remarkable and unmistakable way, making clear that this promise of power from the Holy Spirit has been potently fulfilled. But the disciples' desire for the restoration of Israel's kingdom was not just about exercising strength or feeling national pride. It was also about experiencing peace. A powerful king would mean that they as Jews would, would never again have to worry about wars or raids or battle or danger. 
and seeing Jesus as king in Jerusalem would also mean that his enemies among the Pharisees and Sadducees and others, you know, those who had plotted and completed his killing, that they would also be forever defeated and silenced. Neither Christ nor his followers would ever be disturbed by them again. But again, that is not the kind of king Jesus came to be. And so he has to tell them, no, no, that kind of kingdom is not coming. This is not the time for earthly peace. In fact, they would come to understand soon enough the truth of what he had told them many times before, that, that following him, while it is the only way to heaven, following him will mean suffering as he did, facing enemies as he did, carrying our own crosses and denying ourselves as he did. The life of a Christian, while infinitely better than any other option, is one in which we expect trouble along with our joy and, and sacrifice along with our freedom. So that when God does grant us peace and happiness in an earthly sense, we, we rejoice all the more because we recognize it as the exceptional, extraordinary situation that it is. Still, and again, with Christ's no, here comes a yes. Yes, this is the time for peace. This is exactly what Jesus had been talking to them about for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is, is not about thrones or palaces or armies, borders, or pomp. It is instead the rule of our loving Lord Jesus in the hearts of his faithful people and among all the people of his church. And because it is entirely and only by grace that any of us are brought into his kingdom and that the kingdom itself was brought into existence, it is a realm of undisturbable, eternal, perfect peace for all of its subjects. Sinners like you and I are given peace with the Almighty God because Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross wiped out all our guilt, removing every offense that had separated us from our Father's love and, and destroying the hostility and conflict that had existed beforehand. The fearful are given peace in their hearts, knowing that the, the things they felt guilty about have been forgiven knowing that no enemy can come between them and their Savior because Christ conquered all, and knowing that even their own faithlessness is far outmatched by the mercies of their Lord, who continues to act and to work powerfully in the world and in their lives to keep them close to Him and, in the end, take them home with Him to paradise. The truth of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, and now His ascension into heaven, provides peace to every heart burdened by sin or troubled by uncertainty, worry or weakness, danger or despair. We have a God 
who loved us so much He gave His one and only Son to pay for our sins and make peace between us with His own life and blood. As Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God made Him who did not know sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So Christ's answer is yes, yes, and yes. This is the time for peace. Now there is one last and more practical concern hidden in the disciples' question. Lord, is this the time that something is going to happen? Or should we be standing around waiting until something does? And to this, his answer is not just no and yes, or yes and no, but yes, yes, and no, no. The first yes Jesus gives them even before they ask the question. Yes, you need to wait, though it won't be long. Don't leave Jerusalem, because I will be sending you the Holy Spirit, which the Father promised and I have told you about. You need this gift, this baptism, this power, this equipping. You need this to do all that I have called you to do. So yes, wait. The second yes really came more from the two angels, though it was certainly stated more explicitly by Jesus himself on other occasions. Yes, this is the time you need to wait because your Lord is going away. But He's going to come back and you want to be ready ready with faith, ready to welcome Him when He returns to take you to be where He and His Father live, in the new Jerusalem that is your place of perfect rest and bliss. But the angels who appeared also give the disciples the first no when they ask, why are you standing here looking up into the sky? It's no This is not the time to be standing around, looking up, wondering where your Lord went and wasting time. This is not the time for thumb-twiddling or navel-gazing. And the reason that was true had just been given them by Jesus Himself. He said, no, this is not the time to wait around or wonder what you should do now. I have told you already. I gave you things to do. Once the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will be busy. And what He told them was not just for the eleven remaining apostles, not just for the larger but still small group of believers at that time. No, those people represented all of His people of all time. The entire Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, which includes Christ Lutheran Church, you and me. What did he say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Note that it is not, here's a command for you, nor is it, 
If you get around to it, here's a possibility something you might consider doing. No, he simply states it as a fact, as a reality. This is what will be. Christ's followers, all who believe in him for salvation, pardon, and peace, they will be his representatives wherever they are and wherever they go in this world. And they will tell others what they know. Tell them that Jesus loves them and has done everything for them to save them from sin. And tell them that He wants them too to repent and believe and find their home with Him. That is what a witness does. Tells what he or she knows. And by virtue of being in Christ's kingdom, we are His witnesses. And not only from love for Him, but also in loving concern for those who will otherwise be lost in their sins forever without Him, we want to be the best witnesses we can be. Eager, informed, open, friendly, and above all, always ready. When the apostles asked Jesus, what they asked Him just before He ascended. That could just as easily be questions that we ask Him in our prayers, our cries, and even our complaints. Lord, is this the time? Do we have to keep on waiting? Are You going to make something happen? I need a change. Something's got to give or I'm going to give out. When will you fix our world, fix this country, fix my family, fix our church, fix my finances? And in the same way, Christ's answer to these questions, our questions, echoes the response that He gave to His disciples. It's always loving, always patient, always exactly what we need. No, and yes. This is what it is like to live in the kingdom of God. Sometimes we get what we want. Sometimes we get what is simple and easy and direct. Sometimes we get what is complicated. Sometimes we get what is not pleasant. But what we always get, His yes is what we need. What we need as individual Christians and what we need as His people. Our King rules over us, making sure everything happens exactly as it should. But He is no tyrant. He always acts and speaks with our good as His greatest concern. Just as Paul in our reading today from Ephesians celebrates the result of Christ's ascension and return to His place in heaven. God seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God also placed all things under His feet and made Him head over everything for the church. The church is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. This is what we can count on. 
at this time and at every time. Whether Jesus says no to us or yes, it is in love and with the greatest wisdom and with all power behind it. He fulfilled His purpose on earth with His suffering, death, and resurrection to save us from our sins and death and hell. And before His ascension, He made sure that we knew what our purpose on earth is while we wait for His return. And that purpose, being His people, being His representatives, loving, forgiving, telling, witnessing, serving, that purpose we have is something that we are happy and eager to always say yes to. Praise be to our ascended Lord. Amen. Please rise. Now to the King eternal, to the immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.